After the preaching of God's Word, we'll sing 415, 6, 7, and 10 of 415. Beloved congregation of the Lord, the primary author of our Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, had beautiful words on his deathbed. He said this, I wouldn't trade a thousand worlds for the assurance of belonging to Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful way of describing salvation. Not the assurance that I have faith or the assurance that I'm living a godly life, but that I belong to Jesus Christ. John Wesley, when once asked about the work of God in the churches and the Reformation and revival that he was part of, said this, best of all, God Himself is with us. David said it like this in Psalm 27. He begins boldly, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you see the common thread in all these quotes? The assurance comes by focusing on who God is for His own. They don't say, well, because I have such great faith or because I know I'm so faithful. No, it's because of God. And this is the kind of rich and bold confidence that a well-grounded and exercised assurance produces. How would you like to live that way all the time? God's gift of assurance And the ways in which He renews and preserves that assurance produces this kind of posture in life. Assurance is a very great treasure to be enjoyed. To quote Thomas Brooks the Puritan again, it makes for heaven on earth. So here's our theme, the rich spiritual blessings of assurance. We see the assurance attacked, overwhelmingly fruitful, and most desirable. So, the rich spiritual blessings of assurance. This assurance is attacked and it's overwhelmingly fruitful and most desirable. Now, the evil one is God's enemy, detests the doctrine of the assurance of faith. He does everything he can to try to get people to turn the pyramid of assurance upside down or to give them a false assurance so that they'll ignore the calls of the gospel and and live lives of sin. They'll be like children putting on dress-up clothes and pretending to be princes and princesses. And if he can't do that, then he wants to take the children of God and to rob you of the enjoyment of assurance, get you to misunderstand the gospel as if you have to or can supplement it in some way. If he can just get those daily sins of weakness and those serious falls of sin to cloud the enjoyment of that sense of God's pleasure, and assurance. He loves to do that. Why? Because when you have a lively sense of this assurance of belonging to Jesus Christ, that's when you live the most zealous, diligent, and consistent Christian life. If He can't keep you out of heaven, then His next tactic is to try to keep you from enjoying heaven on earth. Because he wants children of the king to live like fearful, bullied, uncertain slaves. 
Now, when the canons were written, the Arminians attacked assurance as harmful and destructive, and in fact, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches this. It teaches that for someone to claim assurance is arrogant, presumption that makes God angry, and they even anathematize this teaching. That means they say that those who hold this teaching are heading for hell. And if you compare Articles 12 and 13 and Rejection 6, then there's a whole list of accusations made against how harmful assurance is. Supposedly, it makes believers proud and sinfully careless, Article 12. It produces a reckless immorality, and the word here means an unrestrained sexual lawlessness, not caring about what God thinks, that it makes people ignore prayer, that it makes people careless how they live, Article 13, because after all, well, once saved, always saved, and God loves me, and I can't sin my way out of grace, and, and so why wouldn't I just sin? Because it doesn't matter anyway. Rejection 6 even makes the accusation that people become most spiritually lazy when they have assurance of God's favor and smiles. The Dutch expression here that I've translated, a luxurious pillow for the flesh, was actually an Arminian talking point in the debate. It's a graphic example. Imagine this luxurious bed, nice soft gel memory foam top, a pillow that molds around your head, and, and when you're laying in a bed like this so warm and soft and the wind is howling and the snow is whipping past your window, you don't want to get up anymore. You just want to keep on snoozing. Is that true, by the way? Does everyone with a comfortable bed not bother to get up in the morning? Well, you're all here. It's only when self-control and self-discipline are lacking that that is true. Imagine a boss who gives his workers their paycheck in advance every two weeks. How hard do you think people are going to work if they've already been paid before they start it? Imagine a unionized workplace environment in which you know your boss can't fire you no matter what. I know one man who got weary of the unions and finally moved on to a different job. He said this, every week we had at least one conversation that lasted an hour in which people said, how can we get paid more to do less? That explains everything you need to know about modern unions. It's the secret of the welfare state in the Western world. Now, we should help people in need, obviously, but if you give them handouts and don't tell them and don't help them to do their best to take care of themselves, they won't bother to take care of themselves. As long as you pay people to stay at home because of COVID, they will. There was a recent news story about a teenager who was charged with serious crimes in court, and his lawyer um, tried to get him off by saying this, this teenager suffers from affluenza, affluenza. And the lawyer said, this boy's had everything given to him all his life long. He hasn't had to work hard for anything. No one's ever held him accountable. Your honor, you can't punish him because he has affluenza. And the Roman Catholics would say, that's the same that's true spiritually. If you know you're a child of God, you will have spiritual affluenza. Now, you could see the point 
If the only fact you take into consideration, and this is the modern expression, they like to talk about eternal security, and it's interesting that the canons don't use those words. Eternal security, once saved, always saved, and they disconnect it from all the rest of the doctrines of grace because Arminians today try to have it both ways, to have the assurance that comes from the doctrines of grace, but not the doctrines which gives rise to the assurance. If you disconnect this assurance from themes like being born again and the renewing and persevering work of the Holy Spirit, then you could develop a spiritual affluenza that poisons a church in spiritual dullness. But that is quite a list of accusations when you line them up. Because if they're true, then Reformed doctrine is a dangerous, wicked error. Is it true? Well, there's one word in Article 12 that shows you how carefully our fathers at Dort rejected these accusations. They said this, assurance of perseverance does not make true believers proud and sinfully careless. Someone with a counterfeit phony assurance will and does abuse that assurance, not because assurance is wrong, but because it's being abused, because that's what we do as sinners. We, we mess up everything God gives us. Or we mess ourselves up because we take what God doesn't give us. Calling this perseverance, this assurance of perseverance, eternal security does the following damage. I remember uh, when my family lived in Colorado when I was young, uh, the lady who was our landlord from whom we rented the place had an adult daughter who was living a blatantly sinful life. She hadn't been to church in years, and, and every kind of sin she was committing. But the mother used to say to my parents, well, she accepted Jesus when she was three, and once saved, always saved. You see, the same type of thing when people say today, you can accept Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to accept Him as Lord. That's second, and that's later. And, and that doesn't necessarily follow. Look, you either receive the entire Christ or you receive no Christ at all. You can't chop Him up and take part of Him. And this is why it is so wise to speak not of eternal security, but of the perseverance of the saints and of the assurance of this perseverance because of the persevering God. This kind of assurance and a godly lifestyle belong together when you see it this way. I imagine most of you remember the uh, Roman Catholic monk Tetzel. He was the one who used to uh, sell get-out-of-purgatory papers, as they called them, but he also sold something called an indulgence. It wasn't just that you were supposed to spring grandma out of purgatory by giving him money but you could buy an indulgence and that meant for the next 10 days, any sins you might commit or want to commit were pre-forgiven. It's like being pre-approved for a loan at the bank. You've been pre-approved for forgiveness. Just think of it. Anyone who bought this thought, for 10 days I can do anything. And they say the Reformed doctrine makes people careless. Now, can this enter a Reformed church? Well, presumption, a false assurance, can also happen in a Reformed church. It, it happens in various ways. It happens for one when they teach that all our children are born again and grow up saved unless they leave the church later. 
that if you really believe God's covenant promises, you have to teach this. And the Bible goes out of its way to target this again and again. Jeremiah 7 verse 4, people said, the temple of the Lord is in Jerusalem. I live in Jerusalem. I'm one of God's people. Nothing bad can happen to me, even if I'm an idolater and don't even bother to go to the temple. Jeremiah says, this is trust in lying words. Jesus had to confront the Pharisees. They thought the same thing. They thought, well, all Pharisees, all Jews go to heaven. And when Jesus started saying that's not true, they got angry in John 8 and they said, but Abraham is our father. You believe in the covenant, right? You can't say we're in spiritual bondage to sin because that's a denial of the covenant. And Jesus simply says, if Abraham was really your father, you would believe and live like Abraham did. False assurance and living blatantly in sin always go together. And yes, we've seen that David could fall into serious sin, but David came out of it by serious repentance. But if the only thing you've ever heard is we're all God's children, then don't be surprised where serious repentance fades out. But true believers are not immune to this either. Satan's always trying to twist this God-centered assurance into selfish presumption, and he whispers ahead of time the indulgence of Tetzel. Go ahead and sin. It's paid for, right? The blood of Christ covers for all sin, no matter what. And then after the fact, well, you can't be a child of God, because if you were a child of God, you wouldn't sin like this. A believer can say, too, well, I recognize in myself those moments when I abuse this assurance. Those too belong to the sins of daily weakness and backsliding that believers have to struggle against. So what are we supposed to do with all this? What, what a mess we make of everything good and holy. And again, that's proof of the fallenness of the human heart. Even God's most precious gifts don't stay unstained. But what shall we do? Shall we agree with the Arminians at the canons of Dort time and say the best way to get people in heaven is to scare them with the whip and to always be after them? Shall we say with the Roman Catholics that it's praiseworthy to doubt because at least then you know you're not deceiving yourself and you'll take yourself seriously? No, because that's not God's solution. Yes, warnings have their place. We've heard some of them from the Scriptures in the last few weeks. But God most of all uses biblical assurance to produce these wonderful fruits in the lives of His children. It's knowing the love and faithfulness of your heavenly Father that makes your spiritual life flourish the most. That's our second point. This assurance is overwhelmingly fruitful, overwhelmingly fruitful. It's said beautifully here. The assurance of true believers is the root of every spiritual blessing. There are certain plants that survive as long as you don't kill their roots. It's going to be spring soon, even if it still feels like winter today. And the dandelions are going to come up in your yard. Now, you can try to just yank them out, and you might get a long piece of taproot and think the problem's solved. But if even one hair branching off that taproot stays in there, it'll just grow right back. Because the root wasn't totally pulled out. 
And when you have the healthy root and trunk of an apple tree, those branches must and shall produce apples. God does this in creation, and He does this even more in His new creations in Jesus Christ. The roots of every real believer are in Jesus Christ, and this world cannot rip them out of there. So, how do you live when you have and enjoy this kind of assurance? Well, the first evidence of it is humility. Some Arminians back then accused Reformed believers of being arrogant and of claiming, well, the fact that we're the elect means we think we're better than everybody else. Now, I admit, sometimes someone newly discovering these doctrines can be so on fire with them that they can rub people the wrong way. That's caused by the immaturity of the person defending them. But what is it about these doctrines of the electing Father, the dying Son, and the renewing and persevering Spirit that produces humility? Very simply, it's the fruit of the Lord's work. It's the faithful God who holds you by His hand. And as a sinner, you're constantly trying to pull your hand out of God's hand, and He keeps it in there. Sometimes see it in the parking lot, a defiant child. Mom says, there's snow, I want you to hold my hand, I don't want you to fall, I don't want you to get hit by a car. And you see that defiant hand child trying to yank that hand out of mom's hand, but she doesn't let go. Makes a lot of noise, but she doesn't let go. That's the persevering God. An example like that doesn't make you say, I'm quite something, does it? We sing it in Psalm 73. You, God, hold on to my right hand. God is faithful. These doctrines teach us that all our hope should be grounded in God, not in ourselves. Think of everything Article 5 has said about how believers sometimes live. Daily falls into sin and weakness. Serious seasons of backsliding. All of which give us reason to humble ourselves before God making it impossible for renewed people to persevere if God said, I got you started and the rest is up to you? Why is it that David's and Peter's and people who believe in God today are renewed to repentance in these sad falls? It's because God doesn't let go, because God reignites faith and repentance. Why does God stay faithful to people like that, to people like us? Because He's chosen His own in Christ before the foundation of the world, and He won't change His mind. Because election is 100% grace, and if you receive a gift that's 100% grace and you start strutting your stuff, you've completely missed the point. No one who believes in an election by grace should brag about anything. Because every spiritual blessing you received in Ephesians 1 was the gift of God. The goal of these doctrines is to strip people of all bragging and yet to fill the children of God with such joy to praise God because of who He is and what He's done for me. A proud believer is a contradiction in terms. That's why Paul, who glories in these doctrines, calls himself the least of all the saints. But a false assurance is marked by a lack of humility. People become self-centered. It's all about me. 
my faith, my this, my that, I go to church, I do this, I don't do that, I, I, I. And it's more about the believer than the one believed in, God. Thomas Brooks describes it like this, presumption makes men value themselves above market value. To say it my own way, presumption makes people treat a 30-year-old rust bucket like a brand new Lexus. But that's not the fruit of assurance. Secondly, a biblical assurance will produce not just humility, but a childlike reverence or fear. And the word childlike here is there to keep you from misunderstanding. This comes when you see God as He is holy and loving, 1 John 4, 18. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out the torment of fear. He who fears is not yet perfect in love, Romans 8, 15. The spirit of sonship replaces the spirit of bondage again to fear. And so this fear starts with an awe and reverence for God's greatness. The one who sits on the throne of the universe and does everything His way. And yet this joyful realization, His way has been to become my Father in Christ. And He'll take care of me. And I can ask Him anything. And He'll provide for me no matter how much I mess it up. Imagine a foster child that's been bounced around from home to home for years. Some of us have sought to care for such children, and it's so hard. And you know why? Because every time they go to a new home and they wonder, how long is this going to last? Is it for real this time? Am I going to be without a home and parents forever? God's children are not foster children. Sons and daughters of the living God have a permanent home. And the more you have and exercise this biblical assurance, the more confidently you live in the fatherly care of God, the more gladly you're His, and the more eagerly you want to resist sin because it grieves and offends your faithful Father. And you thank Him for His heavy hand of discipline upon you because when God convicts you of sin and puts His heavy hand on you, He's proving His love and faithfulness to you. That's the evidence that you're one of His. When you think about God like this, that's when you start sounding like Psalm 27. Jehovah is my light and my salvation near. He is the strength of my life. Like a father pities his children, the Lord pities those who fear Him. Such assurance cannot produce lazy people spiritually. But a false assurance takes the fatherhood of God and makes it all about me. He's always there for me. There's a better way to say that, you know. I know what people mean, but the better way to say that is He is faithful. He is true to Himself, His purposes, His words, and His people. He is faithful. There for me just means He exists to give me what I think I want. The reverence and the godly fear and the desire to live for God is missing. God is like a vending machine. If you're hungry, you put in your toonie and you pop the button and you get your bag of chips. And for the rest, when you don't want something, the bag, the vending machine doesn't follow you around all day. It just stays out of your way. 
That's what a false assurance will be like. You'll think about God like a vending machine. So we've seen the fruits of biblical assurance, humility, a godly fear that changes how you live. Thirdly, true godliness. What's godliness? It's not the same as holiness and righteousness. Godliness is about the person of God, living with God, living for God, delighting in God, walking with God. What's that do when you know God? Well, the first one is endurance in trial. What keeps you going when the going gets tough? This promise, God will not forsake the works of His own hands. He will finish what He started for me, Psalm 138. David says it in Psalm 37, though the believer fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. The prophet Micah at the end of his book, therefore I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Don't rejoice, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be my light. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's purpose. God is the one who does this. When I was 19 and working at FedEx, we could get um, standby tickets on other airlines for almost nothing, and so I was going to visit a good friend of mine in Colorado. We were going to go backpacking in the Rocky Mountains, and I didn't realize when I bought this standby ticket that there was a music festival in Colorado. The flight from Grand Rapids, I just jumped on, lots of space, and then I was in St. Louis and I was going to go to Colorado, and I couldn't find a single plane with a single flight all day long to anywhere in Colorado. Every time I was there on standby, hoping someone hadn't made it, and every time the flight was totally full. I spent the whole day, and finally I went home at the end of the day. Those who had a boarding pass could just get on, but those on standby could only wonder. But biblical assurance gives you this sense, not that I'm on standby with God, but that I have a boarding pass to the family of God. And that keeps you going because God takes care of you. And that doesn't mean, of course, that believers can't struggle with doubts and fears, but in the midst of your weakness, God comes and puts His arm around you and carries you in His everlasting arms underneath you so that you can say to yourself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you still uneasy inside of me? You hope in God because of who He is. Another thing that true Assurance and godliness produces his fervent prayer. Not this anxious, wavering prayer torn between hope and fear, wondering if perhaps God might want to help me, but the eager prayer of someone who says, my Father is listening. Psalm 34, 15, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, and His ears are open to their cries. That's why you pray. Listen to Paul pray as he writes his letters. It's actually a beautiful study to take all those prayers. You can do it with computers these days. Put it all into a Word document and just spend some weeks just reading those prayers of the Apostle Paul. What do they sound like? Well, listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 
I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus would give you a spirit of wisdom that you might know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. He continues in Ephesians 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you, rooted and grounded in the love of God, may begin to understand the lengths and breadths and depths and heights of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to David pray. Listen to Asaph pray. Even in his greatest heartaches and struggles, he's talking to his God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. I long to see your power and your glory. When you're praying, when you're on your knees, that's the posture of the doctrines of grace. Humble and yet so expectant. That's why when you read the Psalms, look at all the things that the psalmist calls God, and not just names He gives for God, but personally how He ties them to Himself. Listen to this, God, my shield, my strength, my help, my hope, my glory, my boundless joy, my shelter, my wisdom, my righteousness. My strong high tower, I'll stop because if I had to say them all, I'd be going for at least another five minutes. That's how you sound when you recognize, I belong to God and God belongs to me. Another fruit of biblical assurance that you steadfastly bear your cross and confess the truth. Speaking for Christ, sometimes people will say, that's the politeness of our culture, Oh, I'm glad that works for you, as long as you don't have the nerve to say it should be working for you, too. What do you, how do you keep going in a culture that says, every minority is welcome except those who want to serve God according to His Word? Well, Christ says, I overcame the world. Soldiers who fight in a losing war are not fighting well. Soldiers who are in a battle that's going worse than expected don't do well. Just read this week, some of the Russian soldiers have been taking the cell phones of Ukrainians, and that, that means that their talks can be intercepted, and they're saying to each other, well, the war's not going as well as it should have. We were promised that within days this would all be over. And if things aren't going well, you either fight in desperation or despair, and they want to quit but their own government would shoot them if they didn't keep going. So they fight in desperation and despair. But soldiers who fight knowing they've already won in Jesus Christ and because of the faithful triune God can fight most bravely of all. Assurance makes the best soldiers of the cross. Why else was Paul willing to be shipwrecked, robbed, stoned, imprisoned, fined, and beaten? And it didn't even slow him down. Because biblical assurance was his strength. I remember in the home of a pastor of an underground house church network in Vietnam, he was missing three of his ten fingers because of seven years in communist work camps. At any moment, the authorities could break in and haul him off to jail again. They regularly, every six months or so, would steal his computers and the stuff he was translating into other languages, and he would just carry on. And if you didn't know he was in a communist country, you would have never guessed. His wife walked around the house, 
cleaning and caring for the students, singing and whistling. He always had a smile on his face, and he served his Lord. Where does that come from? The conviction, the victory has already happened, and because I belong to Christ, I am more than conqueror. What else does this biblical assurance give you? Well, the canons mention solid joy. Why solid joy? Because it's based in fact. It's not pumped up artificial joy. It's not man-made joy. It's not man-manipulated joy. This is joy in God through Christ. Listen to how Mary says it. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Luke 1, 1 Peter 1, whom having not seen you love, rejoicing with joy too wonderful for words and full of glory, receiving the salvation of your souls. And he says this right after describing believers as preserved by the power of God unto salvation. What joy it is to know, nothing and no one shall ever rip me from the hands of my heavenly Father. That's what kept Job going. I know my Redeemer lives. That's what kept Nehemiah going when the priests and Levites walked among the crowd. They were convicted of their sins against the Lord after the sermon. They were weeping. And this is what the priest said, don't weep anymore. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And God loves it when His children rejoice in Him. That's why so much of the Psalter is devoted to the joyful praise of our God. God loves it when we call Him things like this, God, my God, my boundless joy. The next fruit of this assurance is it stimulates zeal to live in obedience before God. Paul longed to go and be with Christ, but what is, how does he live in the meantime? Read Philippians 3. I press towards the mark of the upward call of God in Christ. I forget what was behind. I'm on the racetrack. I'm leaning forward towards the finish line. How does Abraham live? Well, God said to him in chapter 15, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Not I might be, I am. So how then does Abraham live? Chapter 17, God says to him, you walk before me and be blameless. Remember the day I spent in St. Louis with my standby tickets trying to get to Colorado. Now imagine my friend whom I called every time to tell him I didn't get on this plane, I didn't get on this plane. Imagine if he said, let's talk about our backpacking trip. I would have said, wait a minute, I'm not there. Am I even going to make it there? But if you know you're on the flight, you talk differently. You say, okay, make sure you pick up this and let's go. Looking forward to it. And so it is in the service of God. If you're on standby because you're paralyzed with doubts about whether you're the Lord's son or daughter, will you serve him eagerly, confidently, and joyfully? How can you? But if you love and know God as your father, then you want to and joyfully serve Him. Isn't this why this confidence of assurance is exactly the very thing that ignites repentance? Remember the serious falls into backsliding and sin earlier in chapter 5 here. If you ask David after he was restored from his sin, do you want to do it again? 
If you say, the enemies of assurance would say, you tell him he's forgiven and he'll never repent properly. How does God do it? The second David says, I've sinned against the Lord, Nathan says, and the Lord has forgiven your sin. What does David do? Read Psalm 51. He agonizes over and grieves before the Lord because he was forgiven, not because he still wanted it. That's what made him long for restoration. While he was living in sin, it was like having a broken bone. Those of you who've had broken ribs know what this is like. Every breath is a fresh, sharp pain. Now, if you ask David, do you want your spiritual bones broken again? He would say, not worth it. If you ask Peter, you want to deny Christ again? The tradition of the early church, whether it's true or not, we don't know, but the tradition was for the rest of his life, every time Simon Peter heard a rooster crow, there was a tear in his eye. And I've lived in Guatemala. You hear a rooster crow every day at 5 a.m., whether you want to or not. Peter would say, what? Deny my faithful, loving Lord again? Experience that penetrating look of grieved, wounded love? Be asked again in front of all the disciples, Simon, do you really love me? I would rather go to prison and death than go through that again. And he did. You see, the perseverance of the saints is not a stand-alone doctrine by itself. It is plugged into all the other doctrines of grace. And especially to the God who disciplines and restores His straying people, who renews repentance in His own. God is faithful, and that makes for fruitful living. The answer to rejection six is beautiful here too. People who say that assurance makes you careless really do not know the power of God's grace and the work of the indwelling Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work cannot be overpowered. Why do people resist assurance? Well, because they have a legalistic, slavish mindset. They think the only way to get anywhere with people is to crack the whip and to threaten them and to make them afraid. Why do they think that? Because they know no other way to do anything. The natural man, the person not made new by God's grace, is driven only by pride, the motive of reward and fear, or the fear of hell no more. There's no other reason to work and pray. And if you take away the fear, you would never do anything right. Give a man like that the assurance of salvation or let a man like that claim he has the assurance of salvation and he will be spiritually lazy and careless. But that doesn't prove assurance is wrong. It just proves that that person has no right to a biblical assurance because he shows no evidence of a biblical grace. Remember 1 John 3 that I preached for you on New Year's Day. John says, behold what manner the love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And when you realize that, what do you do? The very next verse, and every person who has this hope in himself is busy purifying himself by the grace of God. Biblical assurance leads to fighting against the daily sins of weakness and confessing them when you fall into them and turning back to God in those sad falls to sin. Pleasing your Father is reason enough for you to do it. That's the difference the Holy Spirit makes in the born again. Do you see now that the biblical doctrine of assurance 
of belonging to Christ is a great treasure to be eagerly pursued and richly enjoyed. See now why Ursinus said, I wouldn't trade a thousand worlds for this joyful sense I have right now of belonging to Jesus Christ. What does God do to maintain that? Well, we'll cover that in the next article. But in the meantime, we can simply sing this. With a confidence complete toward the Lord, my eyes are turning. From the net, He'll pluck my feet. He will not despise my yearning.